0: You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. It's so good to see all of you here. This is a big day for Christians around the world because today is about the very heart of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The earliest Christian confession was that Jesus was crucified, that he was buried, and that three days later, God raised him from the grave. That's the hinge point of history. That is the Christian message. And as far as you go back, that has been the Christian message. The earliest Christians went throughout the Mediterranean world, spreading a message The message was not, hey, we've discovered a new spiritual experience. Check this out. It was not, hey, we've finally gotten politics right. Here's the policy agenda that will fix the Roman Empire. just, Just listen to us. They didn't say, hey, you know what we need more of? Rules. We found new and better rules. Here they are. They didn't say, here are five life hacks to crush anxiety in your life. Know what was the message. One of the very first Christian sermons, the Apostle Peter said it like this, Acts 3, that God raised Jesus from the dead to this. We are eyewitnesses. That was the message. Jesus was crucified and buried, but now his tomb is empty and we've seen him. Much has changed over the past 2,000 years. That message has never changed, and I have nothing new to tell you today. I don't. Christ was dead, and now he lives forevermore. Perhaps someone invited you to come to church today. Perhaps someone dragged you to church today, kicking and screaming, however you got here, I am glad you're here. And my greatest desire for you is that you would believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. Now, there are two ways I could approach a talk like this. I could spend all of my time trying to convince you that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. And I could present all sorts of archaeological and historical evidence to support that claim, and then I would lay all the data in front of you, and then we'd try to come up with possible explanations that accounted for the data that we have from history. And then after we looked at all of the explanations, we would conclude that the best possible explanation, the only one that accounts for all the data, is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And we could spend the next three hours going over all of that data, and that's what we're going to do this morning. (laughs) No, I'm I'm just kidding. Time constraints aside, I'm not going to do that. And and here's why I'm not going to do that. Because ultimately, facts and evidence are not in the driver's seat of your life or my life. Facts don't run the show. In fact, facts by themselves don't mean anything. They only mean something when they're part of what? A bigger story. The thing that drives your life, the thing that drives my life is a story because facts only have meaning depending on the story we tell around them. Let me give you an example. Uh, When I was 10, I had a horrible knee injury, terrible. Knee ripped open, kneecaps sticking out, blood squirting everywhere, it was awful. I've got the scar to prove it. But the next question you've just got to ask is, how? How did that happen? Well, I'll tell you, thanks for asking. Um, I was camping with my family when a mountain lion jumped out and attacked my sister. Why are you laughing? My gosh! My baby sister, and instinctively, I leapt in front of her and began to wrestle this mountain lion and its jaws affixed to my knee. The pain was excruciating, and after what seemed like an eternity, my dad came around a corner, and he fired his twenty-two, and the mountain lion fled off. My sister was saved. All right, it's not what happened. Um, I don't have a baby sister, and my family hates to camp, and uh, my dad doesn't own a twenty-two. Actually, I tore my knee uh, rollerblading, In the rain, I built a ramp in the rain and then jumped off it in my sweatpants. In the rain, and I didn't land one time, actually, I landed on my knee. Uh, Now, what changed? The fact didn't change. The meaning of the fact changed completely. Story one, you think 10-year-old Jeff was a hero. Story two, you think 10-year-old Jeff was a 10-year-old, right? See, what does Jesus' resurrection mean? It all depends on the story you tell. Apart from some bigger story, the resurrection is just a weird event. And even if I could convince you of the evidence, all that would leave you with is a weird event. Perhaps a sign of paranormal activity, but the truth is history is filled with weird events. So today, I want to go to the deeper issue in your life, the thing that is in the driver's seat, and it isn't facts, it's the story you're living in. The story that will give all of the facts of life meaning and significance. You need a story, you can't live without one. Stories are what make us human. We find meaning through telling stories. See, it's not simply that humans love to tell stories. The truth is much deeper. We are stories. As one author has said, we have a natural inclination to think of ourselves as a past, a present, and a future, as an ongoing story. Your life is a story, and the meaning you make out of life depends largely on the story you tell to make sense out of the world. What changed the lives of Jesus' earliest followers? It was not simply the fact of the resurrection, but how that fact fit into the big story of the world and made sense out of everything. Why would anyone want to believe in Jesus? It's not just because of the evidence, it's because of what the evidence means and what it says about our deepest intuitions and longings about how the world works. So today I want to talk about stories, the stories we tell ourselves, and how Jesus' resurrection gives us the biggest grandest, best narrative to live within. And it's more meaningful than any we could invent on our own. Three things today. We need a story. You can't live without a story for your life. But if we're honest, our stories fail, and we want a better story. Jesus gives us the best one. He offers us the biggest story to live within. So let's pray, and then I want to look at the funniest story in the Bible, okay? Okay. All right. God, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us now through your word, Jesus, and would we would see that your resurrection meets the mind's need for rational, reasonable evidence and the heart's longing for how the world should be. Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us now from your word. We praise you today in your name. Amen. I need a story, and and so do you, to make sense out of your lives. We need a story. You know, according to the Apostle Paul, Jesus appeared to hundreds of people after his resurrection. And the New Testament records many of those accounts. But my favorite account, the funniest account, is found in Luke's Gospel. Chapter 24. Just after Jesus has risen from the dead, we read this. That very day, two of them, two of Jesus' followers, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So you get the picture? Jesus has just been crucified, buried. Two of his disciples are taking a walk, and Jesus walks up next to them but they don't know it's Jesus. That's the scene. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Hey, guys, what are you talking about? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? (laughs) You know, people who don't think the Bible... Uh, is funny, have not read the Bible. Did you see what this is great? Do you live in a cave? Do you honestly not know what's been happening? And I love Jesus because he just plays along with it. And he said to him, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. What had these men put their hope in? What story made sense out of life? Like so many Jews of the time, their hope was in a conquering king. As you read through the Hebrew scriptures, there's this great hope, this anticipation that a king will arise from the tribe of Judah. He'll be a descendant of David. This king will be Israel's greatest king, the final king, and this king will finally defeat all of Israel's enemies and finally establish peace. He will usher Israel into this golden age of prosperity and flourishing. And these men had hoped that Jesus was that guy. That he was the king who would crush the Romans and end their occupation of Israel and defeat every enemy. And that was the story that gave meaning to their life. We had hoped, they say. We had hoped. Every single one of us authors a narrative for our lives that gives us what? You need hope like you need oxygen. We have to believe that there is a future worth living for. We just have to, to keep going. I grew up with a kid named Kevin. We played soccer together throughout high school. Uh, Kevin was charming, handsome, probably one of the best athletes I've ever been around. And I had no idea growing up with him that Kevin carried this unbearable load. And in 2005, he reached a breaking point. His girlfriend had given birth to their daughter prematurely. The little girl had complications, had to have extensive time in the hospital. And after she was discharged, Kevin didn't have insurance. He got a bill for $250,000 from the hospital. He knew he couldn't pay it. It was the last in a series of tragedies in his life. And it drove him to the point of despair. And so as he tells it, he drove to the Golden Gate Bridge intending to jump off. He he hopped the railing and stood on that small platform above the water. But as he was getting ready to jump, he heard a voice calling out. A CHP officer had noticed him, ran over to stop him, and, and the officer said, what's your name? Kevin, he said. And the officer said, my name is Kevin too." And for the next 92 minutes, the two Kevins just stayed there. And as my dear friend poured out his heart on that precipice, the other Kevin just listened, just listened, and eventually came back from the brink and began to believe there was a future worth living for. And praise God, he walked off that ledge and now he leads an organization dedicated to suicide prevention. He gave a TED Talk about his experience, and he shared this quote, and it's, it stuck with me. He said, A man can live three weeks without food, three days without water, and three minutes without air, but he cannot live three seconds without hope. Perhaps you've never been in Kevin's situation, and I hope you haven't, but, but hope is not optional for humans. We need hope. We need hope. We, we need a story that convinces us that there is a future worth having and worth living for. This is why music speaks so powerfully to you. Do you realize that? Because what does music do? The dissonance and sadness of music scoops into your deepest, darkest emotions. But but I love how the music theorist Jeremy Begby says this. The dissonance of music and the sadness It's almost unbearable, and yet it's contained. It's contained within what? A chord structure, a meter, a forward drive. Why do we love music? Because every song tells a story. And no matter how sad it is, the story goes somewhere. It moves somewhere. It doesn't get overwhelmed by the sadness, but moves us forward. I don't know if you knew that's why you like music, but it is. Because we need a story. We need something that actually captures the utter tragedy of life but gives us hope for a future worth having. What story have you written for your life? What's the thing that gets you up in the morning? Serving your family, leaving a legacy, breaking free from the constraints that have been placed upon you so you can find yourself? Living to see a certain kind of political or cultural revolution, remaking the world, financial independence, Here's what I know about you. You have one. You have one. Everyone has one. Whatever that thing is that drives you to overwork or that keeps you up at night, whatever it is, it's a narrative that you use to make sense of the world, and you need it. And I need it too, because it's what life gives meaning, and apart from it, life is meaningless. We need a story, and that's fine. The challenge is this. The stories we write to make sense of the world often fall apart. And then we want a better story, don't we? That's what happened to the two guys on the road to Emmaus. There's a poignant moment in the passage. Did you notice it? When Jesus says, what what happened? What does the text say? And they stood still, looking sad. That's the stillness and sadness that a person feels when the narrative they've constructed for their life comes crashing down. And life doesn't make sense. And here's what's so interesting, isn't it? That these men have the evidence for the resurrection right in front of them, don't they? And it doesn't mean anything to them. Look what they go on to say. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not, him they did not see. Now, now that sounds like a big deal, doesn't it? I mean, women who followed Jesus went to the tomb and it's empty? And they talked to angels? That seems like a big deal. And the angels think he's a lot, but, but here's the thing, it doesn't change their emotional state. Why? Because this evidence, they don't have any story to fit it in, do they? They have a story for how the world works, and, and this doesn't fit into that story. That's the challenge with the stories we tell ourselves, is that the stories can fall apart And the question each of us has to ask is, is the story that I've used to make sense out of my life, does it actually make sense? Does it actually meet the deepest longings and intuitions of my heart and the things I long to be true? And the question all of us have to ask is this, what happens when my story falls apart? Right now in the Western world, the dominant story the dominant story is that a meaningful life comes from having freedom. Freedom. Being able to do what I want, that's what gives me meaning so that I can throw off the constraints of whatever, my family, culture, religion, whatever, and find my true self, which is somewhere in here. And if you don't believe that's the dominant story, just spend like seven seconds on Disney+. Plus. Okay? That's, that's the dominant story. Now, freedom can be a wonderful thing. It's not like being constrained is always a good thing. Here's the dilemma we run into. If you make freedom the ultimate thing in your life, what do you lose? You lose meaning. And here's why. Meaning comes from experiencing transcendence, something bigger than you, something that's going to outlive you, something that's true whether you like it or not, something you feel bound to. But if freedom is ultimate, then ultimately I am responsible to make up the meaning in my life. What's a meaningful life? You get to choose. Okay, what do I choose? Whatever you want. How do I know what's meaningful? You want it. Do you see what's happened? In our culture, we reduced meaning down to the size of who? Me. And so it makes meaning very small. There's no bigger story to live for. There's nothing transcendent, and only I can figure out what the purpose of my life is, and I better choose the right one, and it better be the one I really want, or I've missed it. That sounds terrifying to me. That makes life like the Cheesecake Factory. (laughs) And there's a gazillion options, and I can choose any of them, but I just got to choose one and don't make the right choice. And how do I know it's meaningful? Well, you like it. That makes life very small. And so what do we do? We we, we grasp at different things to find meaning in our story. For some of us, we find great meaning in a negative story, in being free from certain things. So we know this thing's bad, so I'm not going to be that thing, right? That's politics right now, right? Vote for us. Why? Because we're not them, right? And that works for a while. For a while, it works to find meaning in your rebellion, your rebellion against a culture or religion or a political party or against your parents, but it only works for a little while because ultimately, you have to answer the question, not just what am I not, but what am I? Not just what am I against, but what am I for? Because no one wants to die with a tombstone saying she was not like her parents. <laughs> he was not like that other guy, right? That's not how I want to go out. That doesn't feel very meaningful. Okay, so now i got to find a meaning for my life. What am I for? And so, so for so many people in the Western world, it's success, right? Goal-setting. I just got to have a big, audacious goal, and then once I meet it, I'll be happy. You know, I've met people who've met their goals, and they said big, audacious goals. In fact, I've met people, and the saddest day of their life was the day they met their goal, because the dream came true, and they realized the dream was not all it was cracked up to be. I remember an interview with Tom Brady on 60 Minutes in 2005. 2005. And he just won his third Super Bowl. And they said, what's it like? And he said, you know what it's like? There's got to be more to life than this. And now, 17 years later, maybe seven Super Bowls will make you happy. Apparently not! Because he's coming out of retirement. In fact, he says, I never retired. Right? I mean, he is clearly the goatiest goat, right? He is the greatest (laughs) of all time. And I say that as a Joe Montana, (laughs) till I die, Niner fan, right? He is the GOAT. I remember his dad saying, I worry about him because I have no idea what he'll do without football. (laughs) Some of the most miserable people in the world are, are people who've met their goals. Because you find out that that dream cannot bear the weight of your soul. And it's crushed under your expectations. Some of us find great meaning In our values, some of us, it's conserving traditional values, passing on the values to our kids, being conservative because we don't want to become like a degenerate culture around us. Now, it's good to pass on values. Next week, we're actually starting a series on passing on the faith to the next generation. But without a bigger story, what's the point of conserving? What's worth conserving? What's worth discarding? How do you know if something is eternally good and worth conserving? And otherwise, you just like conserving? That's like being a hoarder, right? What's good about that? For other people, it's progressivism, and we've got to progress towards some greater future in reality because we don't want to become like those benighted fools who were before us. And progress is necessary in all sorts of areas, but how do you know you're progressing towards utopia and not off the edge of a cliff? How do you know that people aren't going to look back at you 500 years from now and say, thank God we're not like them? We've left that dark age behind. How do you know if you're making progress unless there's a goal? Unless there's some unchanging story and truth that you are marching toward? See, without unchanging truth and an unchanging story, conservatism, progressivism, all of it's meaningless. Meaningless. We live in a society that is rich in freedom, and absolutely impoverished of meaning. Impoverished. Because there's no bigger story, and people are grasping for a story to make sense of their lives. And the question you have to ask is, can it hold the weight of my being? So often it can't. And I think what that points to is something that C.S. Lewis said, that if I find in myself a desire that the world cannot meet, it must be that I was created for a different world. That if our intuitions and longings aren't being met by the stories we tell, maybe there's a better story. That's the story Jesus gives these guys on the road to Emmaus. Here's the bigger story. And he said to them, Oh, foolish one. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now think about what Jesus is doing. These men don't even know it's Jesus yet. And he says, those scriptures that you use to make sense out of your life, you know what, let's read them a different way. In fact, if you look carefully, you'll see that ultimately the king is not coming first to conquer, but there's going to be a king who comes to suffer and die. And that king is going to suffer and die to take the world's evil and your sin and all injustice onto himself and death itself and defeat it and rise and give you something better than just a temporary political victory. In fact, he is going to give you a new resurrected world where every sad thing comes untrue. And a hope that never disappoints. And that's actually what the story's about. A king who comes and dies and rises to save us. And Jesus walks a little further with them. And then they sit down and have a meal. And then they break bread together. And and Luke says that as they break bread, their eyes were opened and they see it's Jesus. And then Jesus, (laughs) he just does such a Jesus thing. He's gone. He's gone just when they realize, and then he's gone. But, but listen to how they, they end their conversation. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? What are they saying? That when Jesus told the story of the world, the intuitions and longings of their hearts said, yeah, that's That makes sense out of everything I've ever longed for and wanted. That's the real story. That's the true story of the Old Testament. That's the true story of the world. See, Jesus tells a story, and it doesn't just make sense of Easter and the events of Easter. It's a story that makes sense of our deepest longings and moral intuitions. We need a story to live by. You're already living a story, but hear what every good story has in common. It needs three things, okay, or it's not a good story, and you know this, okay? First of all, we need a meaningful identity. It's not a good story if you are just a random combination of molecules with no intrinsic worth or significance. And the difference between you and a rock is you're just a more interesting combination of molecules than the rock. No, I need to know, do I have meaning? Do I have a meaning that transcends this moment? Is my meaning deeper than just what I can produce or what I can consume or or my utilitarian function? Is there something about me that matters? Here's what the resurrection says, that, that this world is not an accident. It's a world created by a good creator God. And that while sin has spoiled this creation, This world is not a bad thing that can be discarded. It's a broken thing that needs to be redeemed. And that means that you, you are not an accident. You are actually an image bearer of the living God, created with dignity, value, and worth that is inestimable. And that when Jesus came, he saw you in your sin, that you had rebelled against God, that I had rebelled against God, and he dies and he rises. So that we can rise and live for him, with him, forever. Is there any more meaningful identity than a God who creates you to know you and then to deal with the thing that keeps you apart and then give you an identity that goes on eternally? That is more meaningful than any identity you could construct for yourself. So much of the anxiety in the modern world is this. We tell people all the time, find your identity. Find yourself how do you know when you found it? How do you know when you're you and I found me? That is paralyzing. It's far better to receive an identity from a God who created you. And know, I don't have to figure out why I'm valuable. I already know that there's a God who created me and sent his son because he loves me to die and resurrect me so I can live for him forever. There's no greater meaning than that. The, the resurrection story is a story that actually gives us an identity worth having. Second thing a story's got to have is a satisfying resolution. It's got to. No one has begun a story like this. Once upon a time, there was a girl, and her life was okay. And then things just kind of kept going. The end, right? That's not a story, right? It's not a story, because that doesn't square with our deepest intuitions about how life works. No, there's got to be what? A conflict. There's got to be a dragon. There's got to be a, a guy to get. There's got to be something, right? That makes the story meaningful. We, we crave conflict and resolution. If I went up here and played a dissonant chord, you'd be like, please resolve that. We, we, we have to have resolution. And that's because we know deep in our hearts That there is something wrong with the world and it needs to be fixed. And the resurrection says, yes, you were right all along. There is a problem. In fact, there's there's darkness and spiritual evil and real evil with a capital E that that needs to not be explained but defeated. And that Jesus comes and he takes on, on the cross, all of the evil of the world onto himself himself. defeat it because we know evil has to be defeated. We know the dragon has to be slain. And the problem is worse than that because we also know that the the, the evil is in us. And that makes sense of our own battle with evil. The Bible says that we've sinned and turned away from God and so evil is within us and we're rebels against a holy God. And so how is God going to deal with the evil against us, in us? Well, he sends Jesus to die and to bear the punishment for our sins, to suffer what we deserve for our evil so God forgives us. And then Jesus rises, showing that evil has been defeated, death has been defeated, and we can live forever. That's a satisfying resolution. You need a resolution. You're looking for a resolution for your story. That's the deepest resolution of all. Third thing we need is a happy ending. You need a happy ending. In fact, you're looking for a happy ending. The problem with happy endings in this life is they're never as happy as we want them to be, right? Most hopes really are disappointing. That's why life is this. Man, I can't wait for this to happen. And then while you're doing the thing, you're like, man, I can't wait for the thing after this thing. You ever notice that? I can't wait for the day. And then you get it and you're like, you get to that day and you're like, what's for dinner? Right? You just, you can't find a hope that actually satisfies And that gets back to Lewis's point, that if I find in myself a desire this world cannot meet, I must be made for a different world. There must be a hope beyond hope. Paul calls it the hope that does not disappoint. That's what we need, and and that's what Easter gives us. The resurrection, Jesus' resurrected body free from death is a preview of coming attractions. Jesus rises from the dead, and when he returns, everything will be raised from death. And we will live happily ever after with a hope that does not disappoint. Because right now, the reality of death undoes every happy ending. And there is no happy ever after. And that shows we need a hope beyond death. And see, what that means is this, that like, you know, all of those stories you love where good finally prevails... And the dragon finally gets slayed. And the guy and the girl who, oh, they've got to get together, right? For this thing to work, they finally get together. You know why we want that story? Because it's the story written into the fabric of our hearts. It's the story we long for instinctively. We want that story that goes on and on, as C.S. Lewis said, where each chapter is better than the one that came before it. That's the story you're created for, to know and live with God forever. This is a really good story, and it's bigger than any story you could make for yourself. And now, here's the objection you're going to have to that. You're going to say, Jeff, it sounds too good to be true. Too good to be true. And here's what I'd say to you. (laughs) You're going to live for a story one way or the other. It's not like you can... This is wishful thinking, like, oh, I don't like this story, so I'm going to be factual and rational. No, you're going to make up a story. And you're going to live according to that story. The question is, will the story give you meaning? Will it give you a meaning like this? It's not whether we'll live by a story, it's what story we choose. And, And second, here's the best news of all. This is the news of Easter, that the story that seems too good to be true actually is true. The story that sums up every myth, every longing, every story, it invades this earth and becomes the true story of the world. See, there's one point in human history where all of the hopes of every story we've ever told and facts, history, objective evidence, one place where they meet, and that's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where the desire of the mind and the desire of the heart come together. Because here's the reality for the early Christians they did not believe in the resurrection in spite of the evidence. To a person, they didn't expect it, and they had to be overwhelmed by the evidence to believe that Jesus rise from the dead. And it was the overwhelming nature of the evidence that changed their entire worldview and changed their story. And if you investigate this, what you'll see is there are plenty of reasons to believe that it actually You long for a story that is true, that honors the mind and satisfies the desires of their heart. I've looked at every story. There's only one that meets both of these criteria, only one. And that's the resurrection. That's it. And so if you're willing to enter that story, you can ask Jesus and and he'll invite you into it. And you would pray something like this and you can pray with me now. Jesus, I've written my own story for my life, and uh, I don't like it. And so I thank you uh, that you've written a better one. I confess that I've sinned, that I've done evil. Thank you for coming and dying for my sin, for bearing the punishment I deserve. Thank you for rising from the dead to defeat death and sin so that we can live happily ever after. I trust in you as my Savior. I follow you as my Lord. And I trust you to rewrite my story. I ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.